Ooh boy, today we've got temptation, shame, and repentance. No, this isn't an old-time Baptist revival meeting. It's the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome to The Backdrop. Curtis here, as always, and we are getting on track in our journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, This time, we're catching up on some back issues, so to speak, looking way back to when we went through chapters 3 and 4 in the pre-Christmas days of 2020. We talked a fair bit about the kingdom of God those two weeks as a sort of introduction to the book of Matthew as a whole, but there were a few odds and ends that it would be good to talk through together uh, here as well today. So, without further ado, let's get into chapter 3. This is where we meet John the Baptist, who shows up as almost a quasi-Old Testament figure out in the wilderness to bring to mind the wanderings of the Israelites and the setting of the Exodus, as if to say, a new Exodus is arriving. The wilderness setting might also be meant to bring to mind a common theme in the prophets, which is their unwelcomeness in the cities, nearer to the locus of power. If you remember, Jeremiah got in trouble whenever he was in and around Jerusalem, and that was fairly typical for prophets, and it will be typical later on for Jesus as well. A prophetic figure preaching repentance and implicitly, if not explicitly, challenging the powerful needs to be careful where they set foot. The wilderness is often a more hospitable place for a message like that. John's dress and food and manner also bring to mind the prophets of old, Jeremiah and Elijah and the like. Some people remark upon his diet of locusts as if that marked him as strange in some way. But locusts were a fairly common source of protein in the ancient Near East, actually. And they're probably mentioned here more as a way of establishing his wilderness-iness more than his weirdness. In any event, the Pharisees and Sadducees come out to see what John is up to. He might be out in the wilderness to avoid too much exposure to the powerful, but they find him anyway, because his message and his baptismal practices are offering people forgiveness outside of the established channels that forgiveness and becoming right with God were supposed to be offered through. The Pharisees and Sadducees were accustomed to controlling these sorts of things, in other words. But now John is offering an alternative, and they want to see if they can go and put a stop to it. And his message for them is confrontational, shall we say. As we saw with Jeremiah, God's representatives are not always the nicest people around. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, John says. It's an image of snakes slithering away from a fire. One scholar that we've been reading as we work our way through Matthew, Craig Keener, says that in the ancient world, there were some who thought that vipers actually ate their way out of their mother's womb at birth, killing their mother in the process. And so there may be a layer of what John is calling them that is basically saying you are parent killers. And this would go quite well with what he goes on to say. Don't think because you are children of Abraham, you're safe. This is another link to Jeremiah, by the way, who had that exact message for the religious leaders of his own day. You aren't children of Abraham, John is saying. You might as well be murderers of Abraham and the ancestors. If you want to be children of Abraham, then act like it by repenting. Otherwise, God will raise up new children of Abraham. He could even raise them up from these stones, John says. Now, John is making a pun here. The word for children is ben, and the word for stone is eben, as in Ebenezer. So John is saying God could raise up bens from these ebens. (laughs) The Bible's always good for a pun. 
And here we come to the heart of John's message, one Jesus will repeat in the next chapter. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does that mean? As I referenced at the top, when we hear the word repentance, we often think of revival-type meetings, of fire and brimstone preachers who are literally trying to scare the hell out of us. But what would repent have meant for John? John's warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the axe is already waiting to chop down the tree and throw it in the fire. N.T. Wright makes the point that this warning would not have been heard in an individualistic way at the time. Each of you is a tree, and if you don't repent, you will be chopped down and thrown into the fire of hell. That's not what this would have meant at the time. John's warning, in fact, is an exact reprisal of what we saw in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 11, we read, Yahweh called you a thriving olive tree with beautiful fruit in form. But with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire and its branches will be broken. The tree in Jeremiah, and as John is using it here, is an image for Israel, for the nation. The sins that need to be repented of are the sins of the nation that has gone down the wrong paths and hasn't trusted in God, in contrast to what Abraham, their father, did. This interpretation has the added benefit that repent and trust in Yahweh is entirely consistent with the message we see throughout the Old Testament. It's what we came back to again and again in Jeremiah. Repent, believe, trust in God instead of idols. That is what John and then Jesus are saying. And they're saying it again, just like Jeremiah and the other prophets said it in the Old Testament. Now, individuals need to repent as a part of this, of course, but that isn't the primary message here. That isn't the primary meaning of repent in this context. John is calling for Israel to live as if they were actually God's people. John is calling Israel to turn around and start living in a way that better embodies who God is and who God has called them to be. And repentance, N.T. Wright says, is what needed to happen to correct what was wrong for the people of Israel. They had not fully returned from exile because the promises that Jeremiah and the prophets had made for what would be true when exile ended, they hadn't come true yet. Some had maybe, but not the important ones. Exile hadn't really ended, even though they were back in the land. And so what needs to happen for the exile to end and for God's promises to come true? Well, in the prophets, it says that the people need to repent, turn back to God and live God's way instead of following idols. John and then Jesus in the next chapter are inviting the people to try out a different way of being God's people. Try Jesus's way instead of the way of the Pharisees which looked like exact adherence to every letter of the law and sometimes violent resistance to Rome. Try Jesus's way instead of the Sadducees way, which was more like accommodation to Rome and protecting their own power. Try Jesus's way, which will be spelled out in the chapters to come. And this also makes sense of the action that John was doing, baptism. Baptism was not a thing that Jews would do. Baptism is something that Gentile converts to Judaism would do. People who were turning from an old way of living that was leading away from God and turning to a new way of living that involved trusting in Yahweh alone. That's who was baptized. So for John to have Jews be baptized and for Jesus himself to be baptized, it was symbolizing that they were entering anew into a covenant with God, that they were saying, we want to be the people of God, turn from one path that led to death and turn to a new path that leads to life. N.T. Wright thinks that a primary aspect of this was abandoning hopes of violent revolution against Rome, 
of taking up arms and bringing the exile to an end by force. This is in the same way that Jeremiah advocated for abandoning violent resistance to Babylon, because the result otherwise would be the violent destruction of Jerusalem. Again, just like Jeremiah. And this in fact happened in AD 70, where Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem for a second time. So most of these references that today are read as if they are talking about an individual being burned in hell, they were primarily meant to bring to mind the nation being burned by Rome as a punishment for their sin, for not following Yahweh. But that's another topic for another day uh, when we get to the idea of Gehenna. For now, let's move on to the baptism of Jesus specifically. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? John wants to know this as much as we do. It doesn't make any sense if we're looking at this as a individual sinner repenting and going a new way. Because Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was not an individual sinner who needed to repent and go a new way. What does make sense of Jesus being baptized is if we take what we were just saying into account. If repent and believe is primarily about the nation of Israel as a whole turning to follow Yahweh. The first words people speak in ancient biographies, which is what the Gospels were, they're important. They give us an insight often into something central about who that figure is. John's first words are, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this sets the tone, the theme for the whole rest of the book. Jesus's first words are important too. When Jesus comes out to be baptized by John, at first John resists. No, this is shameful for one of your status as the Messiah to be baptized by one as lowly as me. But Jesus insists and speaks his first words. Let it be so for now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. These words, again, they're a little confusing when you think about fulfilling all righteousness as meaning something about an individual person not sinning. In that sense, Jesus is righteous. He is not sinning. He didn't sin. So why does he need to be baptized to fulfill righteousness when he already has done that? But that's not what righteousness means here. The scholar Ben Witherington III, in his commentary on Matthew, says it like this, fulfill all righteousness is in the Old Testament sense, which as we've seen so far is absolutely appropriate for this chapter, which invokes so many Old Testament stories and images. Righteousness in the Old Testament sense means a particular course of conduct that does justice to another's needs. You hear how that's not quite the same as sinning or not sinning, at least in the way that we sometimes think about it? Righteousness means, again, a particular course of conduct that does justice to another's needs. And then Witherington goes on to say, righteousness is doing what one ought to do in light of what one has covenanted to do or promised to do and in light of what is best for the situation. So now, what does it mean for the Son of God to do what he ought to do in light of what he has covenanted to do? Well, God made a covenant with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would bless the whole earth, that it would be through Israel that God's kingdom would come in all its fullness. And so Jesus here does what he ought to do in light of those covenants. He identifies himself with Israel, He is baptized in Israel's place, doing what all Israel ought to have done, but has not. Jesus is saying, I am the descendant of Abraham through whom all of God's promises, all of what God has covenanted to do with Abraham, will come true. 
I am the descendant of Abraham who will do what Israel ought to have done all along and align myself with God's goodness and justice and form a new people of God who make the same choice to follow me and be baptized and then live a life as a part of God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am keeping God's promises because a righteous God keeps promises. So that is what is in Jesus's mind. But for those all around, Jesus being baptized would be basically an admission that he is of lower status, lower honor than John. And John is, as we said, uncomfortable with this. But Jesus isn't. Jesus consistently upends and dismisses social hierarchies based on honor or money or power. And this is another example of Jesus doing just that. In the eyes of the dominant social structure, Jesus's baptism is a marker of shame, or at least a marker of lowering himself below John. The Messiah would not be baptized by anyone. But then there's this other variable in this equation. See, honor could be bestowed by one with high social status. The emperor, for example, could raise someone's social status by speaking highly of them. And how does this story end? A voice, the voice of God, comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God, the person of highest honor, raises Jesus up right after Jesus had lowered himself down. The last will be first. Those who lose their life will save it. The social structure tells people in that day, and our own in different ways, to carefully guard reputation, social status, honor, or else people will look down on you. But in the kingdom of God, those who voluntarily lower themselves in service of the kingdom, something that would be unthinkable, an unthinkable thing to do in that society, a shameful thing to do to lower yourself intentionally. But it's those people whom God will raise up. And God's word of who is honorable and who is shameful is worth far more than what society thinks. Jesus is here and consistently does throughout the New Testament, redefining what is honorable and what is shameful in a society that had very specific ideas about that. And then the words from God have another significance too. For one thing, they closely match the words that God speaks to Abraham when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Take your beloved son, Isaac. So it's possible that these words are referring to the sacrifice that Jesus will make in the future as a son of Abraham. I think what's maybe more likely or more prominent um, as a frame of reference, though, is that these words are a combination of Psalm 2-7, in which God calls Israel's king, God's son, and then Isaiah 42-1, where God says that God delights in God's servant. Jesus is the king who is a servant, the one who willingly makes himself low, but who is then raised up and exalted as king, because that's the way things go in the kingdom of God. Now, moving on to chapter four, we talked a lot about the temptation passage in our sermon on this chapter and how it is primarily concerned with the how of the kingdom. How does the kingdom come? By what means does the kingdom come? And you can go back to listen to that sermon from week two, if you'd like. But a couple other quick notes on this passage. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 was a number that obviously connects with 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights of the flood and the story of Noah, and many other instances in the Old Testament as well. 40 was a number that meant a long time. It was not always meant to be taken literally, though. It's kind of like how we would say, oh, we've been waiting for our food for hours, or 
oh my gosh, this red light is taking a thousand years to change. We're not meaning to be taken literally. It's a figure of speech. But it's still conveying something true. Something is taking a long time. And that may be the case here as well. It may be that Jesus is not literally taken 40 days and 40 nights. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. It might just be that he was out there for a long time. Either way, it's conveying something true about what's going on. Also in the temptation story, the devil quotes scripture, which is interesting. But Satan consistently quotes little bits of scripture and verses here and there and takes them out of context. Much like the snake does in Genesis, by the way. Jesus's responses are also from scripture, Deuteronomy to be exact. But Jesus's responses are not taking verses out of context. They are reflecting the broad themes and meanings of Deuteronomy, not individual words or phrases. I think that's a helpful reminder and warning for us as we engage with the Bible as well. Then after this, Jesus goes to live in Capernaum, a small fishing village in Galilee. Probably around a thousand people live there. For the most part, the rural areas like Capernaum of Galilee were relatively Jewish and unsophisticated. They were kind of the rough around the edges parts, whereas the cities were more Hellenized, more Greek, and therefore more Gentile. And then chapter four ends with the calling of the disciples. And this is another instance of Jesus completely upending, or maybe completely ignoring, the social conventions of the day, in particular what was honorable and shameful. To put it simply, disciples came to rabbis, not the other way around. A rabbi showed themselves to be someone worth following, someone honorable and wise, and then disciples would seek them out. And in the process, they would give even more honor to the rabbi. The more people willing to put themselves under you, the higher you get pushed up in the eyes of the world. But a rabbi seeking out disciples would basically be an admission that they aren't a very good rabbi. No one wants to follow them. It would be shameful to any self-respecting rabbi. But Jesus isn't self-respecting, we're seeing in these chapters and in others. Jesus lowers himself, inviting Peter and the rest to follow him. And in the process, Jesus forces the disciples, too, to confront whether they're more interested in their reputation, their honor or shame in the eyes of others, or if they're more interested in following the kingdom of God. Because Jesus's invitation to follow isn't neutral. It means leaving their families to some degree taking themselves out of the complex web of social responsibilities that would have been assumed at the time. As sons, fathers, husbands, they have responsibilities. Responsibilities that it would be shameful not to fulfill. Responsibilities that Jesus invites them to leave in order to follow him. That's a difficult decision. And they make the somewhat scandalous choice to follow this shameful rabbi who came and sought them out while ignoring their duties to provide for their own families. This is all the more the case when you consider that a fisherman in those days, at least in kind of the rural Galilean village like this, would have been kind of in the relatively well-to-do category, at least compared to the others in the village. Jesus is right up front showing Peter, James, John, and the rest what the terms of the agreement are here. Do you want to be part of this kingdom or do you want to keep going the way you have been? Repent and believe. Join the path to life. So I think that's enough for chapter four and for this episode of The Backdrop. Thanks for listening. As always, we will be back next time with chapter five in our long-term quest to catch up with the week, to the weekend sermons. Uh, but join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific. You can find a Zoom link on our website, and we would love to see you there. Until next time, have a great week. Bye. Bye.